Hello, friends, and welcome to our first podcast of 2024. Um, our podcast was offline for about three months due to a technological glitch. Uh, very sorry about that. And I wasn't sure we'd get to this episode, uh, which has become something of a tradition for us uh, here at this podcast. Happily, the glitch was fixed, and here we are. So the past two years, I've invited my friend and colleague, George Hanley, to discuss uh, some favorite books we read during the year. Um, lots of folks have these lists, I know, um, but it's a fun idea, and our lists are often a little different. Uh, George is a professor of interdisciplinary humanities in the Department of Comparative Arts and Letters at BYU. He served in a variety of important capacities at the department, college, and university levels, uh, and he's also on the Provo City Council, so he wears many hats. Uh, he's also the author of several books, including works of literary criticism and history, environmental studies, which is writing, and creative works. So. Welcome again, George, for the third consecutive year, and thank you so much. Thanks so much, Matt. I, I love to be here. Usually we're, we're recording this before Christmas uh, to get it out between the week of Christmas and New Year's. This year it's after Christmas, so I yeah, you're here, which means you made it through the holiday safely, <laughs> despite the descendants of three grandkids. Right, right. And also, man, I had a little more time to read, right? Yeah, that's right. That's very good. <laughs> we had time to read the books we're talking about, exactly. right? <laughs> Going against university well, tradition. Yeah, I had to reread a little bit of one of them because it had been a while, and I was like, I know I loved this book, but yeah. I don't remember <laughs> okay. everything. Yeah, anyway. well, thanks for the time. We appreciate it. So a reminder, some ground rules for our discussion of some favorite books uh, for this year, 2023. So the podcast is titled Faith and Imagination. So we chose books that fit the general theme of the podcast, books that speak to matters of faith, religion, and spirituality. We've read lots of good books that don't fit this theme, presumably, but will be a bit more focused on our discussion here today. Um, we chose three books, and we'll take three to four minutes to discuss each one. The books don't need to be things that were published in 2023, only things that we've read in 2023. Um, and as I explain every year, I only talk with guests on this podcast whose work I love. It's a qualification for getting on the podcast. Um, some of those guests will hear their work uh, in my favorite list of books of 2023, uh, but every guest has work that might have appeared on it. So I'm acknowledging up front the artificiality of my list. Uh, I might have chosen so many other books and I was pained by several I didn't get to include. Um, before we get to our three though, and to expand our list somewhat, we're going to mention a few additional books that almost made our list of three. This is basically our way of cheating in order to include more books. So what are your uh, uh, books that made, I guess, the honorable mention list this year, George? Um, yeah, I well, I had a I had a sabbatical this year to write some literary criticism, so I had to unfortunately spend a lot of time reading literary <laughs> criticism, which is not the kind of literature that I would use in a broadcast like this. So, um, but I came across the work of Matthew Potts, who's a literary critic and theologian uh, at Harvard, and he wrote a book called Forgiveness, an Alternative Account. He, I also came across a number of really stunning essays, and I. Um, he just opened up a way of talking about literature theologically that I thought was extraordinarily effective for any reader, right? He's writing with a theological orientation, but he's writing to other literary critics, but he's also writing to other theologians and to people of faith. And so it was fascinating to me to see how he did that and how well he did it. I, I think it's... Um, a very inspiring account of forgiveness in literature, but also in 
in life. Um, and so I, I thought that was a fantastic book. Um, another book of theology, which is kind of a um, was kind of a controversial book in its time, uh, Original Blessing by Matthew Fox, um, who's a Catholic theologian who basically is arguing against original sin um, uh, in some really interesting ways, which is why he, it kind of created some controversy. Um, but it's uh, f- it's certainly um, f- f- leans favorably toward the kind of theology I prefer, which is a theology of a fortunate fall and the idea that um, there's a kind of uh, original blessing to life and to uh, mortality that uh, he really rescues. It's it's a very popular style, so it's very readable. It's very um, powerful and, and sort of lends itself to um, practical application in, in one's life. And then I finally got around to reading Waiting for God by Simone Weil, which I mm. had um, you know sort of read quotes from and, and had read some other of her work, but um, this is my favorite thing that I've read and thought it was really fantastic. You know, she's this um, Jewish woman who never fully converts to Christianity, at least officially, but becomes very persuaded by Christian theology and becomes one of Christianity's most important uh, voices of, uh, and so it's fascinating to me to see what someone coming into Christianity from the outside sees as value in the in the tradition and and she really focuses on compassion <clears throat> compassion and empathy and love of enemies and um, a lot of the the hard things that we don't always do so well within Christianity uh, fantastic book and then finally this is the most dry and perhaps less readable of the recommendations I don't want to make it sound too awful, but it's a big book, and it is it is called Science and Religion by Holmes Rolston. It is the finest work of uh, on that topic I've ever come across. It is exhaustive. He goes through the different sciences and the social sciences uh, and interacts with theology in each chapter, and he's absolutely brilliant. He's spot on wise on ev- at every turn. It's a, a stunning, remarkable achievement. It's very academic and very long. That's the only thing I have to, <laughs> which may be chased away virtually most of the, the people listening. That doesn't sound like my kind of book. But I, I thought it was educationally one of the best books I've read in many years. I've not read that book. I have read, of the list that you just mentioned, those four books, I've read uh, some stuff by Matthew Potts, and I agree it's just terrific. And I've read Simone Weil, and it just, she blows my mind. I mean, she's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a gift for insight, and kind of original kind of ways of seeing things in her that I always find just startling to read. Yeah, and I've not read that Ralston book. That sounds actually the kind of book I might, you know, read the, the driest dust thing I often yeah. <laughs> read myself in my academic life. That sounds actually really great. Yeah. They all do, actually. Um, that's a good list. Um, so I, I chose five uh, books from my honorable mention list. And as you'll hear, um, poetry will once again occupy a prominent place in my list like it did last year. Um, let me begin with something that's not poetry, um, though it's very poetically beautiful. This is the book, All Manner of Things, Meditations on Suffering, Death, and Eternal Life, written by Jeffrey A. Vogel and published by Cascade Books this past year, 2023. Uh, it's a beautiful set of meditations written for and about a friend who was dying of cancer. It's a book of theology, 
But these, these aren't philosophical words about God in this book as much as a series of reflections that attest to an experience of God um, and an expression of hopes in and for God, a, really a deep desire for God. Vogel is profoundly attentive, I think, to the vast yet intimate spaces of spiritual longing uh, and to the silence that informs so much of spiritual life. And he writes beautifully about redemptive hope in Christ in the periods of suffering, uh, what that suffering is our own or that of people that we love. So I highly recommend this just poignantly gorgeous and new book just published a couple months ago. Um, Second, I want to bring attention to a recent work by my prolific friend Patrick Saint-Jean, a Haitian Jesuit who also teaches in the Department of Psychology at Creighton University. Um, In 2022 with Orbis Books, Patrick published the book um, titled The Crucible of Racism, subtitled Ignatian Spirituality and the Power of Hope. It's a complementary work to Patrick's 2021 book, The Spiritual Work of Racial Justice, uh, for which I interviewed him on this podcast. And that earlier book takes readers through a 30-day Ignatian program uh, where they may come to terms with the racial injustice they unwittingly perpetuate and from which they suffer. In this later book, The Crucible of Racism, um, Patrick spells out key Ignatian ideas while also sharing more of his own story after coming to the U.S., uh, especially his experience of racism, including from other Jesuits. Uh, Patrick is warm and generous. His book is a helpful uh, reminder of the things we live with, even as it carries a bit of a bite mm. um, in its critique. Mostly the book presents a way to draw on powerful spiritual resources uh, to help us overcome uh, and heal from the scourge of racism. So now I'm going to mention three collections of poetry uh, that might easily have made my list of top three. Uh, the first is Sally Thomas's collection, Motherland. Uh, Sophia's nodding. We talked to Sally, she's a guest on the podcast with Micah Maddox, and we spoke at their anthology, uh, Christian Poetry in America's 1940, over a year ago. And she's also an upcoming guest on the podcast to talk with us about Motherland, um, which was published in uh, 2020 by Able Muse Press, and also her beautiful novel uh, titled Works of Mercy, published in 2022. She's one of those guests we recorded the interview, then we kind of went into the dark technologically. So Sally will be coming up here in a few weeks. Uh, even though we talked to her, sounds like feels like years ago. Actually, it was just a few months back. But um, many of the poems in Motherland um, have this religious, beautifully religious quality, though very subtly. Uh, so uh, she specializes in evoking domestic scenes characterized by a sense of transience and ethereality, right? The scenes of memories that are fading, or maybe co- qualities of light in an afternoon, or the flickering of religious epiphany that kind of comes into the out of consciousness. Um, she also writes beautifully about motherhood, though these aren't the rollicking joys or hyper-distractions brought by young children. Uh, it's more like the quiet, almost stolen moments of reflection about the meaning and poignancy of parenting. So that's one of the, the books that made my honorable mentions um, this year. Second collection of poems I loved this past year, and that might have been my list of top three, um, uh, is is uh, the book Homespun and Angel Feathers by mm-hmm. Darlene Young. Yeah. You're nodding, yeah, you know this yes. book. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, this was published by BCC Press. BCC, that's by Common Consent Press back in 2019. Um, I've also recorded a podcast with Darlene, um, uh, Sophia and I did. They'll be dropping in a few weeks. Uh, she's a Latter-day Saint poet who writes about Latter-day Saint as well as broader Christian themes. And she also writes like Sally Thomas, about motherhood, about the melancholy of growing up and growing older. I found a couple of poems in the collection screamingly funny. 
Uh, others mm-hmm. I found deeply poignant, and the poems about Christ I think are breathtaking. Uh, all in all, just a beautiful collection. Um, and third, as the last of my honorable mentions, I love the collection, uh, The Family Book of Martyrs by Benjamin Myers, published um, by Lamar University Literary Press a year ago in 2022. Uh, one of Myers' gifts as a poet, it seems to me, is creating a deep sense of narrative truth through what amount to mere snapshots of individual lives or places or circumstances. I think his best poems read casually. They don't concuss themselves uh, or us in what William Wordsworth calls poetic diction, but they kind of allow language to run gently through their subjects. This could be uh, a poem about his daughter dancing or a poem about a group of guys with whom he played basketball 20 years earlier or a poem about his father or in my favorite poem in the collection, uh, a poem about his father-in-law whom he meets in a heavenly dream sequence in a large field. Um, These are quiet, sometimes very funny, and always elegantly loving poems. So those are my list of honorable mentions, yours too. Um, So I guess, any questions? We're going to do our list of three, George. Well, I just want to second what you said about Darlene Young's book, which I had read last year, although I just read her new collection here, which I loved. Um, Just read it uh, on Christmas Day, actually. Uh, because I gave it to my daughter, but I wanted to read it before I. <laughs> so you gave her a used copy, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I gave homespun to my wife. Uh, so I think very highly of her poetry. And I also uh, just echo. I, I haven't read Patrick's second, uh, more recent book. I did read the other one that you mentioned, because of your um, interview with him. I I read it and thought it was really one of the best books on racism and um, theology that I'd come across and very practical, um, very commonsensical and but pushes, you know, in all the right and best ways. Anyway, so I'm I'm I was taking notes as you were you were giving that list. Yeah, I'm glad you you read that. He's such a warm personality, Patrick, and and uh, very someone who very much believes that the only way to heal racism finally is spiritual healing. Yes, politics, that's necessary. And yes, legislation, but also finally it's a it's a spiritual healing that Patrick wants to initiate. Yeah, he's just such a, I love Patrick. He's such a good friend. Mm. Um, okay, so now count the list of three. So we're gonna go kind of okay. go three. I'll give you my third on my list of three and then we'll go to you. Okay. And then my second, your second, my first, your first. And we'll kind of move that okay. way. Uh, so number three, right, drum roll, right, Sophia, um, is uh, the book Dawn of This Hunger uh, by Sally Reed, uh, published in 2021 by Second Spring. These are my three, by the way, I'll, give it, I'll just give it away. They're all uh, poetry collections. I just, I've really been taken by poetry the last few years. Um, this collection, Dawn of This Hunger by Sally Reed, is a beautiful and moving set of poems depicting the life of Christ. Um, mostly as a disciple's reaction to that life. It, um, it kind of follows the gospel narratives through with lots of poems about that. And much of the poetry is given to the experience of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And I especially love uh, some intimate poems about the relationship between mother and child. There's a deep intimacy to those poems. Other poems picked scenes from the Bible, uh, Mary Magdalene washing Jesus' feet, the woman with the issue of blood, uh, the transfiguration, the raising of Lazarus, Gethsemane, Christ's crucifixion, his resurrection, and more. Um, Sally was a guest on the podcast earlier in 2023, and we spoke there about how she wrote these poems after her conversion 
uh, from atheism to Catholicism. And I'm going to share one poem here that I love. I can do this with poetry, but this is short. This is a poem titled, uh, What the Sparrow Saw. Here it is. In the long afternoon, dull with expected sunlight, is it possible that a bird nearby would not be changed at its scorched wingtip or in its jagged gaze by what it witnessed? Would it have seen the angel or just the staggered girl holding her own hands? Would she have been so still that he rested for a moment on her arm like a winter branch but soft? Or would he have jittered, flittered that the immense bodiless made present like a sunset on the doorstep, a tsunami in the barn? And if his breast feathers were warmed, shaken harder by his minuscule heart, if his eyes contained then a moment's intense knowledge of what was near, or even a crazed bird madness, what deep hope for me as I kneel before your presence? Mm. Just beautiful, right? It's told from kind of Mary's perspective, right, with uh, the angel Gabriel announcing, you know, what was Mary's going to undergo. And it imagines this additional figure in the scene, this small sparrow, this scorched wingtip. I think it's such a, a beautiful uh, light touch. Um, and, and the sparrow in some way stands in for us as readers uh, before some grander presence that the poet invites us to understand and feel through a poetry. Uh, that's my number three book this year. I thought it was just beautiful. It was a Sally Reed, uh, Dawn of This Hunger. That sounds wonderful. Um, my third choice uh, is Both Things Are True by Kate Holbrook, uh, who is a Latter-day Saint uh, historian, um, was the women's historian for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and uh, she tragically passed away of cancer um, prior to finishing the book, um, I, and I will probably admit that uh, I was a, a friend of hers. Uh, uh, her husband, Sam, is a, is a dear friend. And so I was a little bit close uh, to understanding the context of this project. Um, it's rather poignant in that, you know, several, uh, a number of valued friends helped um, to finish the book. Um, Sam wrote the epilogue um, because she hadn't finished it entirely when she passed away. Um, but had sketched out enough of it and drafted enough of it that, that um, these uh, women, Jenny Pulsifer, um, Miranda Wilcox, and Rosalind Welch, uh, sort of helped bring it across the finish line. And um, it's the title sort of helps you understand a little bit about what she's up to. She's, she's sort of uh, always interested in kind of um, seeing multiple sides of an issue, um, not not as willing to to think in terms of dividing one thing from another, but trying to find ways to integrate and think holistically. Um, and she does it brilliantly. She has a style that's not overly academic. It's it's very accessible um, and very very wise, and also very personal and domestic. And I think the most impressive essay in the entire collection is called Housework is a Crucible of Discipleship, um, which I, I can't think of anything I've read on that topic that comes uh, anywhere near what she's accomplished in this short essay. I, it's really remarkable. Um, and um, 
you know, I don't, I don't have the space to go into all the details, but, you know, she covers everything from, um, you know, the, the sort of gender dynamics of housework and um, the sort of uh, the purpose behind it and the anxieties behind it, the superficiality and vanity behind it, and also sort of the dignity of, of it um, all together, right? This is, again, part of uh, how, how well she thinks. And I'll just read a passage about cleaning that she's talking about the demon of perfectionism, which I, I find quite interesting. Uh, she's talking about cleaning the church, uh, which Latter-day Saints do as a regular practice um, to maintain their church buildings. And she talks about a one man who, for a while, just decided he was going to do it for the entire congregation and did it so perfectly that no one ever felt like they could be good enough after that. <laughs> She says, if the main reason I don't like cleaning the church is because I can't do so to perfection, that teaches me about other areas in my life. I don't like wiping down our gas stovetop for a similar reason. I can't do it perfectly. The stovetop usually has some burnt-on something that I can't seem to remove. This is also why I often dislike writing. By dislike, I mean that I experience it as purgatory. <laughs> I choose to let the flaws be more important than any little good my writing might do. This new self-understanding toward which I'm moving feels momentous. My perfectionism likely also discourages the people with whom I live from having a positive experience of housework. I wonder what will happen spiritually as I learn to ease my expectations. Housework, either the cleaning we do at the church or the cleaning we do in our homes, can expose our buried feelings of inadequacy. This happens for multiple reasons. Maybe we don't do it well enough or we feel frustrated because some people over-contribute in creating the housework and under-contribute in performing it. She elsewhere talks about <laughs> forgiveness as an important part of this. Children are famous for this. Perhaps more than any aspect of our lives other than eating, housework is repeated every single day. Repeated activity has the most to teach us because we have to face it time after time. Through the daily nature of housework, we confront our personal thinking errors. Anyway, I think... It's a, it's a lovely book, um, and it's a tribute to a lovely human being and uh, to a community that she helped build uh, that responded uh, at, at, at her impending death with, with great uh, willingness and uh, sacrifice to, to, to bring this beautiful little book to fruition. I'm glad you brought that book and made that one the list of three. I've read that book. It's a beautiful book. Um, I did not know Kate or her husband Sam as well as you do, um, but I, I I met I met her. I've, I've met Sam. I think extremely highly of both of them. And that book there by Kate, I, I, you capture her style so well. Uh, and there is a kind of a it's, it's so smart, but but um, so accessible. And uh, a big mind thinking through complicated things in, I think, really wonderfully, um, not simple, um, but you know, complexly simple, right? Yeah. Holding both things yeah. true at once. It can suspend judgment. Deceptively simple. Deceptively yeah. simple. She yeah. also, you know, if you've seen in any of her lectures or seen her talk in public, she was, uh, which there are some recordings online you can see, she was an extraordinary an engaging presenter very much um you know so she she exhibited that both in her writing and in her verbal yeah. presentation so my number two uh choice this year second on this list of three um this is uh laura reese hogan um the collection butterfly nebula published this past year 2023 by blackwater press 
Um, Laura may be my favorite poet. She's a former guest on the podcast, and her previous collection of poems, Litany of Flights, was my number one book last year. Um, Butterfly Nebula might also have been number one, but I wanted to vary the order to introduce some diversity. <laughs> so, Laura, if you're listening, I apologize. Um, everything Laura writes is beautiful. Um, this latest collection is breathtaking. It's a haunting set of poems based principally on astral figures like nebulae and their correlatives like deep sea life. Um, uh, things that are very far away and very strange to us. Um, these strange and mind-blowing figures give expression to the vastness, the vastness of the universe. Uh, and they contemplate on that nature, on that basis, the nature of, of distance and light and silence and energy and new birth and more. I'm always especially drawn to uh, Lara's depictions of the relationship of the human and the divine uh, and the way and to the way that God enters our lives. Uh, nobody, I don't think, articulates the force and the poignancy of a spiritual experience quite like Laura. Uh, here's one poem, an illustration. This is a poem titled The Elysia Sea Slug. And there's an epigraph from Ezekiel, uh, uh, book of Ezekiel in the, in the Old Testament, uh, that reads, I will give you a new heart and place a new spirit within you, taking from your bodies your stony hearts and giving you natural hearts. There's the epigraph, and here's the poem, the Elysia, the Elysia Sea Slug. Things go sideways. The body opens the wrong doors and lets in bad company, copepods that take over. Then we carry it, segments crippled with parasites, stony growth. I think you mean it when you say you'll give me a new heart. I see evidence in stars in the sea slug that can detach its entire diseased body and crawl away on orange horned antennae. The head births a new form. Mangled sea stars and flatworms do this, but only the Elysia sea slug sprouts a heart from just a head. This is your prescription. You pry loose the cargo and craft fresh strands of light. When I unhook all the parts and struggle away, won't you come rebuild? Tear down the years the locusts have eaten. Let the heavy consignment fall. Regenerate a glistening wholeness from only one piece. Let that piece be you. Mm. It's beautiful, wow. isn't it? It's a poem yeah. about transformation. Um, spiritual transformation, but it imagines that process of transformation occurring by way, uh, you have right, reference to a strange creature that dwells at the bottom of the sea, this Elysia sea slug. Um, and for that matter, it attends to the strangeness of existence, all existence, including perhaps especially ours, when we consider ourselves brought into relationship with God. You know, we sea creatures who live very far from the light uh, but who find ourselves, in, and in Laura's poetry, are willing to find ourselves transformed by God. Um, as I see it, Laura's poetry uh, causes us to reckon honestly with what we are as fallen creatures, but also, therefore, with what we are as part of God's creation, born to be in close relationship with the Creator. So that's, that's Laura Reese Hogan, Butterfly Nebula, my number two book for this past year. Oh, that sounds wonderful. I'm looking forward to reading that. 
My second choice was the Mountains and Waters Sutra. It's a practitioner's guide to it that is uh, edited and introduced by um, a Buddhist scholar and monk, uh, Shohaku Okumura, who's contemporary, um, but this is a text that was written in the 1200s by Master Dojin, and I I'm brand new to, uh, I mean, I took a Buddhism class in college, and I think that was sort of the last of my formal exposure to uh, Eastern uh, religion and philosophy. But I came across um, him in reference to the book that I'm going to talk about next. Um, But I, uh, so I I was eager to read it and eager to understand it. in part because I'm a lover of mountains and waters, um, and I wanted to understand <laughs> that love a little bit differently. And you know what I what I learned. Uh, so Dojin is essentially trying to write about things that can't be written about. Hmm. So his his language is 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 elusive and it's and it's difficult. Um, but it's beautiful and compelling at the same time. So a lot like poetry, right, and, and other literary forms. And Okumura is himself an absolutely brilliant thinker. And so the introduction to it, it's a relatively short text, but reading Okumura is uh, just as valuable as reading Dojin, I, I found. Um, so I, I and, and essentially what, what comes across is, you know, the Buddhist concept of being able to still your mind enough and to um, reduce your ego enough um, to be able to let the world reveal itself to you, right? That this is an important principle in Buddhism, but it's certainly an important principle in all aesthetic experience and artistic expression and in other theologies. Um, So I found it extraordinarily moving and compelling for that reason and felt eager to read and learn more from uh, Buddhism in this regard. Um, And the passage I'll read from it really gets at the heart of this idea that there's something, there's a language that's waiting to express itself to you from the world around you, um, but you and I don't have the eyes to see it. We don't have the the patience. Um, our active uh, conscious mind is too busy distracting itself with um, petty interests in protecting, shoring up your our ego and 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 our self interest and our anxieties and all the rest. And that there's something. Um, deeper within us and deeper in the world around us that is one, that is connected, um, if we will, you know, do the work to, to um, strip ourselves down uh, to be able to, to see those things. So this is uh, Dojin. This is, starts with a quote from Dojin who says, When we are truly practicing, the sounds and the colors of the valley streams, the colors and the sounds of the mountains, all unbegrudgingly expound their 84,000 verses. So that's the quote from Dojin, and then this is Okumura helping us to understand. 
This means that the sounds of valley streams and the color of mountains do not hide the Dharma, the teaching, the truth, the reality of all beings. The reality is already always revealed. Nothing is hidden. What's important is the condition of the person. Are we ready to listen to what the valley stream is really saying to us? Are, are we ready to see the Buddha's body through the form of mountains, through the form of everything? Dojin continued, and this is a, so this is a quote from Dojin. When the self does not cling to fame, profit, body, and mind, valleys and mountains as well do not withhold their verses in a similar way. Mm-hmm. And then Okamura continues. We often make a kind of fence between ourselves and all other things. We cling to whatever we own as our personal possession. When we get something good, we want to take it into my territory and keep it. This is our basic problem caused by the three poisons, greed, anger or hatred, and ignorance. If we are free from these, we can see that the fence is only in our mind. In reality, we are not separated from other things. And if we are free from this separation, then not only mountains and rivers, but each and everything in the world is always expounding Buddha's teaching. This is the reality of impermanence, egolessness, and interdependent origination. Anyway, so as a Christian, I, I, don't, I, I find great inspiration from this. I find similarities with the idea of Christ's uh, teaching that we should lose ourselves um, and that in losing ourselves, we find ourselves and uh, that there is a divine presence in the, in the creation and um, the, what we call the secular world or the mundane reality, uh, which Kate Holbrook uh, lovingly talks about at the end of the essay that I was just alluding to, um, is nevertheless the opportunity for um, a, a, a kind of divine presence if, if we are careful enough and uh, hungry enough maybe, or perhaps um, we lose the fear of uh, holding on to things and we let ourselves go and that's when we get filled. That's really beautiful. I've not, I've not heard of uh, these thinkers, uh, uh, Dojin or Okamura, um, but that sounds like something I, I would love to read. In fact, what you say about um, becoming still enough and reducing our ego enough to be able to allow things to present themselves to us and distill on us, that ring that, that was going to resonate a lot with my number one book here. So we're thinking along the same lines Good. here, George. Yeah. Um, so and that sounds that's a beautiful book. I will look that one up for sure. Thank you. So here's my number one book of the year, my top ranked book for 2023. Um, it's a collection of poems, "Cup My Days Like Water," by Abigail Carroll. You had, me, you had me at the title, by the way. Yeah, that is such yeah a there you go. Title. Well, you, George <laughs> writes about water and mountains, as you said. Yeah, it's a, and it's a beautiful book. It was published uh, in 2023 by Cascade Books. Um, these gorgeous poems adapt uh, and they ponder and expand upon and meditate in the interstices between uh, lines from the Psalms. So they're kind of Psalm remakes in some mm. ways. Carol is such a beautiful poet. Uh, she's a future guest, and soon, I hope, on this podcast. She composes poems of exquisite stillness, right? Delicacy meeting eternity. Um, more than anything, I think, um, I love Carol's feel for the presence of God. 
there's nothing loud in her poetry. These are poems that are calibrated to a still small voice, and I want to call it a still small and synesthetic voice, a voice of a lot of sensual richness, you know, where um, a sound in a poem may touch on an image that merges into a shadow and that gives birth to a thought. Um, it's in this kind of attentiveness, careful attentiveness uh, to things. We discern the poet's deep love for God. And here's one example from the collection. This is a poem titled, I think appropriately enough, Appointment with Stillness. So here it is. Stand in the company of a tree. You'll want to run fast and far. Stay. Remain in the arbor's under gaze as under the eye watch of love. Don't be surprised if you are unable to move, stunned by a vast silence, redolent of apples and rain and the precise scent of air on the day you were born. Learn to concede to the slanted light. In time, you will sink to the ground. Let bark imprint its long hand on your back. In time, leaves and winged insects will cantillate their shimmering truths. In time, you will know yourself to be held by what cannot be seen, the white pappus of a dandelion lifted on a playful breeze. Mm. It's based on Psalm 1611, in your presence is fullness of joy. What I love about this poem uh, is its invitation to stillness. It's as dramatized, you can't hear this so much over the podcast, but dramatized by short lines, sometimes one or two words that ask us to contemplate slowly each phrase, almost each word. And in the end, you know, by gazing on creation so carefully, so slowly, so stilly, we catch a sight of creation's creator and ascend into a state of awe. And the message of the poems is that the divine is all around us. It radiates gloriously, but we're too distracted to notice. So this theme, George, what you're talking about this last book. Um, and in that respect, these poems are designed to train us to be still, help us to learn to see, and therefore to experience the divine. That's the number one book of 2023, Cut My Days Like Water by Abigail Carroll. Mm. Yeah, that's, a, that's beautiful. I love, I love the title. I think this is uh, very beautiful. Well, my, my number one book uh, for 2023, by the way, Kate Holbrook's book was published in 2023, as was this one. This is David James Duncan's new novel, much anticipated by fans of his, called Sunhouse, that was published this year. It was 16 years in the making, mm -hmm. and readers who are familiar with The River Y or Brothers K uh, know that Duncan is a very funny, funny writer, but he's also a very serious uh, he's very serious about spiritual matters, and um, and by the way, you know your your description of Carol uh, reminded me of your book, um, which I think has taught me more about why it is that writer writers um, who may have some spiritual convictions or orientation um, nevertheless feel this urge to supplement, to add, to rewrite, to play with uh, scripture or traditionally received understandings and expand or, or you know, 
explore them in new ways. And, and Sunhouse is doing that in spades. Mm-hmm. Um, Duncan's an unconventional person of spiritual orientation in that his formation is entirely outside of formal religion and organized religion. And so as a person who was ha, has raised in an organized religion and has lived in one for all of my life, it, it was certainly an education to understand the sort of idiosyncratic path that characters take in this book to find healing uh, outside of the boundaries of any sort of dogma, right? And, and so that was fascinating to me. And clearly, all of the characters in the novel are um, sort of like salmon who migrate up toward Montana, um, where they end up from the Pacific Northwest, and they um, find healing in, in, a, in a variety of uh, from different problems, including losses and um, personal demons and um, other issues. And it's a very optimistic, hopeful book, but it's um, not afraid to look at the most difficult, most troubling things that have troubled theology uh, uh, for, for uh, centuries. Um, problems about, you know, natural events and, and tragedies, uh, human evil, and, and, and all the rest. Um, it's, uh, there, for readers who, who may feel um, sensitive to, to um, you know, vulgar language, there is one character uh, who is a holy fool in the novel. <clears throat> He's actually sort of one of the spiritual heroes of the book, uh, but he's a holy fool, and he's a very, very vulgar man, and he's not at all what you would associate with a holy man. He lives in the streets of Portland. He works and lives among the homeless and is totally unabashedly committed to relieving uh, suffering wherever he goes. But he swears like crazy. And um, (laughs) that's all sort of intentional in terms of what, what Duncan is up to. Anyway, I'll just read a passage. It's a, it's a, because it's a novel, it's a little bit longer. I'll try to make it quick, but it's a scene where there's a very touching relationship between a father and daughter. The father's been kind of a philanderer, and the daughter loved her father at a young age. He was the source of energy and positivity in the home, and then he abandons her. And so she has this great uh, wound in her because of him, but they have a reconciliation at the end of his life and then he dies and she spreads his ashes in this valley in Montana where he grew up. And this is sort of part of her own healing. And she's explaining to another character about um, <clears throat> what happened when she spread his ashes. So in another scene, she de- he describes in great beauty this um, feeling of peace she experiences. So she explains to her friend, it's hard to feel frustrated when I just spent two of the best days of my life in this meadow with these incredible mountains hovering overhead, feeling my father and some kind of God the mother hovering overhead too, asking myself why these days and nights feel so perfect, what Lou says about the wrongness of bouncing our brains off satellites to everywhere but here rings true. Without devices and broadcasts, what is is the broadcast? And what is, is a wonder. I spent a long time yesterday just watching the caddisfly larvae crop off the river, bottom onto dry rocks, leave the sand and pine needles, sleeping bags they'd built with their own special glue and transform themselves into big orange insects that open their wings, fly up into the air to find mates, then airdrop their eggs on the water to become next year's October caddisflies if a trout doesn't eat them. 
for the suspense, the mystery, the transformations, caddis flies rival human drama. I watched a northern harrier gliding low over the grass, do the craziest midair flip, reverse direction as it dropped to the ground, and then up it flew again, calm as could be, with a vole in its talons. I watched a giant flock of cedar waxwings circling this enormous meadow all afternoon, turning this way and that as if the hundreds of them shared the same one mind, and that's the mind I pray to stay inside of. Everything intricate and real and connected to everything else. Everything alive, needing to eat, so sure, there's lots of death. Each trout rise all day ended the life of a little cool mayfly my dad called a blue-wing olive. But the birthing is endless, and the carcasses and kills make the beauty bittersweet, which is the flavor of what's real, flavor of paradox, dark chocolate, good coffee, mortal life, flavor of John of the Cross saying moaning is connected with hope. I'm well aware that while the Harrier was doing its gold medal worthy backflip and killing its vole, my car radio could have told me an earthquake just killed 400 people in a fresh broken country and a shooting rampage left 18 dead in a devastated city and a madman abducted three kids playing on a trampoline and abused and killed them and horrified millions. But there's no doubt in my mind that we weren't created to connect ourselves nonstop via gizmos to every horror suffered by the six billion of us instead of attending to what is right here where we are. Like today, a flock of white crowned sparrows landed in a weed patch near me. Anyway, and then she ends by saying, if you ask me, being in tune with trout rises, harrier grace, caddis transfigurations, white crowned friendliness, hawk kills, deer carcasses, and the ashes of those we love gives human and animal suffering, the bittersweet dignity of a great old blues tune, which was my dad's <laughs> favorite music. Oh, that's great. That's rich. Yeah, yeah, it's that's great really stuff. good. You know, I've not read uh, Duncan, which is just such a negligence on my part. I, I've, you know, I've wanted Brothers K for a long time. Now that one Sunhouse is now on my list. Well, it seems it seems up your alley in yeah. terms of spirituality, uh, for sure. Um, yeah, he's he's. Anyway, I think he's a remarkable writer. He's very entertaining and engaging, and he's, like I say, he's very funny. There's yeah. lots of humor. Oh, you can there. tell. <laughs> you can tell. Yeah. Yeah. Humor that hurts, actually, yeah. in some cases. Yeah, yeah that sounds great. And he's great. playful with language, yeah. too. Yeah. That's wonderful. That's a great list, George. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you for coming here to co talk about these books, these, some of these favorite books you've read in 2023. Um, and friends, that wraps up the episode. Uh, welcome to 2024 and to more great books and great conversations. So George, uh, we'll do this in a year. Uh, All meantime, right, I'll get, I'll get going. There you go, <laughs> start. Uh, meantime, thank you as yeah. always for your generosity of time and expertise. Thank much you, appreciated. Matt. I very much enjoy it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Faith and Imagination Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by the Faith and Imagination Institute, the BYU Humanities Center, and the College of Humanities at Brigham Young University and is produced and edited by Sophia Snyder. The music for this podcast is composed by Ethan Lickman and is performed by Nicholas Phillips on Albany Records. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on your podcast platform. And if you're interested in other episodes, check out our website at humanitycenter.byu.edu. Thanks again for listening.